Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a sovereign grace fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle Paul's letters to the Ephesians and the Colossians. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. We are beginning at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, which begins with the word, therefore, and we can't really start with, therefore, we need to understand what Paul has said previously in order to understand the force of the therefore. I will tell you in advance, the beginning of chapter 2 talks about how sinful and depraved we are, how dead in trespasses and sins we are, how we used to walk according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, how we used to walk in disobedience, and as if that weren't enough, Once Paul says, therefore, he then concludes that we were also separate from God in all our ways. Israel, after all, already had relationship with God. They already had the covenants. They already had the promises. They had the connection with Abraham. They had all the history of the prophets. They had the scripture. They had the oracles of God. They had all those advantages that we Gentiles didn't have to begin with. So not only were we sinful and depraved and dead in our trespasses and sins, but we were also separate from everything in this world which would lead us to understand anything about God. So not only were we blind dead, we were in the darkness. We were incapable of understanding anything about God. Pretty feel-good message so far, huh? <laughs> we're going to start reading at chapter 2, verse 1, so that we can build up to the therefore in verse 11. Paul is then going to say that the Jews and the Gentiles in the first century church had a great deal of conflict between them, and you can understand that. For the 1,400 years of Old Testament Jewish history, dating back to the time of Moses, and really before that, you go back a couple thousand years in order to get to the time of Abraham, they were always God's chosen elect people. They were God's community of people on planet Earth, and they saw themselves as being the covenant people of God. Therefore, they referred to the ungodly Gentiles as dogs. They saw themselves as being inherently better than the Gentiles in the world because, after all, they did have all those advantages. Even Paul in the book of Romans says, what advantage does the Jew have? And he says, much in every way. And then he lists the things that I just told you. They do have the oracles. They do have the promises. They do have the prophets. And so they had advantages over the Gentiles in every way. But here is Paul being the apostle to the Gentiles, 
teaching Christ to the Gentiles, teaching salvation by grace through faith to the Gentiles. Gentiles are receiving the Holy Spirit of God, and it is Yahweh, and it is the Jewish Messiah who is saving them. And so naturally, that causes what Paul called a jealousy among the Jews. And that jealousy caused them to dislike the idea that Gentiles were now getting the rewards that they had been actively working for for 1,400 years. They had been under the law. They had been under obedience to everything that Moses had laid out. And then Gentiles, these Johnny-come-latelys, these dogs who didn't keep the law, who weren't under all the restrictions that we were under, they are now getting the benefits of salvation from our God through our Messiah? That just doesn't seem fair. And so there was this partition between the Jews and the Gentiles. And so what Paul is going to talk about next is how Christ in his body through his sacrifice, making himself a ransom, he also broke down that barrier wall of partition between Jews and Gentiles. Remember that Paul's theology is that everybody's guilty, Jew or Gentile. And even when he said the Jews had all these advantages, he didn't say it like, and that's what saved them. Instead, he said, even with all those advantages, they remain in sin just like the Gentiles do, so that grace is the only way that anybody can be saved. So as we're reading in chapter 2 here of the book of Ephesians, he's going to remind the Gentiles in the flesh that they were separate from the community of Israel. They were separate from anything that would allow them to understand God more properly. On top of their own sinfulness, they were separate. They were alienated from everything that was God that represented God on planet Earth. So it's kind of like a double whammy. Not only are you bad, but you don't even have access to the stuff that would make you good. Chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus, in order that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus." So, by grace you have been saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift from God, not a result of works, that no one should boast, but we are his workmanship, 
created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore, remember that in the past, formerly, you, the Gentiles in the flesh, okay, that's his target audience, the church, the saved, the elect at this moment that he is writing to, are Gentile people, not Jews. They were referred to by a negative pejorative, the Jews used to refer to them as the uncircumcised. You might recall that all the way back at David fighting Goliath, one of the ways that David insulted Goliath was that he called him an uncircumcised Philistine. And it wasn't really the Philistine part that was that upsetting. It was the uncircumcised. That meant that you were not a part of the community of Israel, and only Israel were connected with Yahweh. Only they had the revelation. Only they had the law. Only they had the promises. So to be uncircumcised was an epithet. So he says, you Gentiles in the flesh, not only is he saying you are Gentiles by birth, you are Gentiles by lineage, by genealogy in your flesh, but also the very fact that your flesh has not been circumcised is an indication that you are Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision. And then Paul does something really interesting. He says, by the so-called circumcision. Now, what does he mean by that? Why would he add that notion that the Jews are the so-called circumcision. It's because Paul's theology of circumcision transcends just circumcision in the flesh. Instead, he says that the real circumcision, the ultimate circumcision, is to have your heart circumcised, to cut away at your heart until your heart is amenable to the things of God so that you can understand the things of God. Here, turn to Romans chapter 2 for just a moment. Romans chapter 2, and we're going to read a bit of Paul's theology of this type of circumcision, flesh versus spiritual circumcision and circumcision of your heart so that we can understand why he would say the so-called Circumcision, Because the Jews, who actually had the circumcision in their flesh, as they continued to reject their Messiah, Paul said that was evidence that even though they had the circumcision in the flesh, their heart was not changed. Therefore, the true circumcision, the genuine circumcision, was not theirs. So even if they referred to themselves as the circumcision, against the uncircumcision, Paul argues that their circumcision doesn't help them the way that they think it helps them. Romans 2, let's start reading at verse 17, just so we can identify the audience. In Ephesians 2, Paul very specifically said he was writing to the Gentiles in the flesh, so we understand the target audience. Here in Romans chapter 2, verse 17, but you bear the name Jew. Okay, now we know who the target audience is. He's speaking to the Jews. But if you bear the name Jew, 
and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law. Okay, there's the connection. They are circumcised in the flesh. They are Jewish by heritage, by nature, by genealogy. And they follow the law of God. Hold on to that because Paul is going to identify that law of God, which requires circumcision, as being the wall of partition between Jew and Gentile. Because the Jews have the law, which requires circumcision, and they are circumcised. So they look at the Gentiles who are uncircumcised, and they create a division. You don't have the law. You don't have Abraham. You don't have circumcision. We do, and that Paul calls a wall of partition between the Jews and the Gentiles. And then he's going to say that Christ abolished that wall. But we'll get to that. Let's continue reading in Romans so that we can understand Paul's theology of circumcision. But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind and a light to those who are in the darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. But if you're a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Now, is he saying that if you are circumcised in the flesh and don't keep the law, that somehow your flesh is going to recover? Obviously, he's not saying that. Instead, he's saying your identification as part of the covenant community of God, which is designated by your circumcision, that particular designation of you becomes nothing because circumcision identifies you as someone who keeps the law. But if you break the law, then it doesn't matter if you're circumcised in the flesh or not. You are then opposed to God. You are then causing the Gentiles who don't have the circumcision to mock God because you, the covenant people, the circumcised people, don't keep the law either. Therefore, the very fact that you are circumcised proves nothing. Can you get now why Paul would say the so-called circumcision? They're walking around proud of the fact that they've been circumcised in the flesh, but in fact their actions, the way they live, demonstrates that their circumcision is completely insignificant because they don't walk after the law. 
Paul has already said, if you keep the law, then your circumcision is of benefit to you. But if you break the law, your circumcision is not circumcision. Starting at verse 23 again. You who boast in the law, through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. But if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Now, by contrast, verse 26, if therefore the uncircumcised man, uncircumcised in his flesh, the Gentile who is not circumcised, if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, won't his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? So he's now contrasting the Jews who are circumcised, who aren't keeping the law. Therefore, their identification as the covenant community of God, the descendants of Abraham, is insignificant. It means nothing because you're not walking after the course of the covenant. But then if an uncircumcised man, if a Gentile, in this case, he'd be talking about the God-fearers, Gentiles who are joining the community, Gentiles who are keeping the law. Therefore, if an uncircumcised Gentile were to walk righteously, the fact that he is uncircumcised in the flesh would make no difference whatsoever. God would regard it as circumcision and regard him as part of the community, as part of the covenant people of God. The fleshly circumcision, in other words, doesn't matter. Have I said the word circumcision enough times this morning? Is it making all you men a tad uncomfortable? The fact that some people are circumcised doesn't matter unless they are also walking in righteousness. If you're walking in righteousness and not circumcised in the flesh, God will count your righteousness as if you're part of the community. But if in the flesh you're part of the community, but you don't walk in righteousness, well, then your circumcision does not mean that you're part of the community. So that's why Paul would talk about circumcision versus so-called circumcision versus uncircumcision. If, therefore, the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And will not he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who, having the letter of the law and the circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? Wow, Paul took it all the way over and said, you think that just because Abraham is your father and you have the mark in your flesh, to demonstrate that you are part of the Abrahamic community. If you don't walk after the law and some Gentile dog does walk after the law, he's going to be your judge. And that was just unthinkable. That an uncircumcised Gentile is going to be my judge? I'm part of the community of Abraham. I'm part of the community of Moses. I'm part of the community of Israel. And a uncircumcised Gentile 
is going to judge me? Notice where Paul is putting all the emphasis. It is on obedience and walking in righteousness, not in your flesh. The larger theology then is exactly what he wrote to the Ephesians, that it's not going to be your flesh. It's not going to be your works. It's not going to be your actions that are going to save you. Otherwise, you have something to boast in. Salvation is by grace through faith. And because it's by grace through faith, it can't be anything in you, including your circumcision. It is within that context that Paul then says in verse 28, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter, not by the law. And his praise is not from men, which is what law-keeping would get you. If you keep the law, if you're a leader among Israel, remember how he just described these people? I think he's talking about the Pharisaical folks who believed that they could rely upon the law, that they knew the will of God, that they approved things that were essential, that they were instructed out of the law, and they were confident that they themselves were guides to the blind and a light to those who were in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having the law, the embodiment of all knowledge and truth. They're the ones who teach others. That's the people group that he's talking to. These people who would brag about themselves and their ability to teach other people and instruct other people and judge other people. And then Paul says, but you're also guilty before the law. Therefore, all that stuff you're boasting about turns out to be nothing. That is exactly what is already said in Ephesians 2. It's by grace through faith. Otherwise, you would boast. These people are boasting in the fact that they are the circumcised. They are the leaders of the community of God, and they are the Jews. Notice, by the way, just to be very specific here, the community of people he's talking to, the audience he's speaking to, are Jews, all Jews. That's why he said, you bear the name Jew. That's why I said his target audience is Jews. So when he says, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, but one who is inwardly, neither is circumcision, that which is outward but in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. Nowhere in there does Paul say, that some Gentiles, when they have the circumcision of the heart, become true Jews. That is very common, that folk who believe that the church have somehow replaced Israel in the economy of God, they will oftentimes go to verse 28, pull it completely out of its context, and say, look, 28 and 29 says, he's a Jew who has the circumcision of the heart. So if you have the circumcision in the heart, and you have faith in Jesus Christ, you're now a Jew. But that theology is not the theology that Paul was teaching, demonstrated by the fact that he's talking to an audience of Jews, and he identifies his audience. He's talking to Jews, and he is making a differentiation 
between Jews who have a circumcised heart and Jews who only have the circumcision of the flesh. And that's the differentiation. Nowhere in there can you introduce Gentiles into the conversation and say that Gentiles who have circumcised hearts become true Jews. That doesn't exist. Do you get some idea of why Paul now would make reference to the so-called circumcision? Because the people who would be speaking against the Gentiles would be the Jews, the so-called circumcision. But if they've had the circumcision of the heart, like Paul has had, then they are out there evangelizing Gentiles. They are out there telling Gentiles to come to Christ, talking about the great love of God, talking about the electing grace of God. They're not against the Gentiles. They're for the Gentiles. They're introducing God in Christ to the Gentiles. It is only the so-called circumcision that is still opposed to the uncircumcision. You get the relationship? Have I confused anybody? Everybody's good? We're back in Ephesians 2. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called the uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time when you were just uncircumcised Gentiles, remember that at that time, you were separate from Christ. There's your first problem. Not only are you sinful, not only are you depraved, not only are you walking after the course of this world, after the prince of the power of the air, not only are you doing whatever your flesh and your corrupt mind can conceive of, not only is that your problem, But you are also separate from Christ, the Savior, the one who stands between you and God's wrath. You don't have him as a benefit either. Separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. That's why I began by saying Israel had all the advantages. Israel had the prophets. Israel had the scripture. Israel had the oracles. Israel had the law. Israel has the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, even the new covenant. Get this right. Every covenant that you find in the Bible is made with Israel. These are all Israel's covenants. That would be a huge advantage. And not only are you separate from Christ, you're separate from the very community of people who would be able to instruct you in the ways of God. So you're really hopeless. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called the uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise. The Abrahamic covenant is a covenant of promise, an unconditional covenant. 
based on promises that God made to the descendants of Abraham. And if you're strangers to that community, then you're strangers to those covenants of promise. The Davidic covenant that someday David's greater son would sit on David's throne and rule over Israel is an unconditional covenant. has to happen. But we Gentiles in the flesh, we're strangers to that. The new covenant first fleshed out in Jeremiah 31 is an unconditional covenant made specifically with the house of Judah and the house of Israel. And we Gentiles are strangers to that. So all the covenants, the unconditional covenants that God made by himself through the power of God, by the grace of God, through the love of God, through the revelation of God, all those covenants we Gentiles in the flesh are strangers to. And so how are we going to be saved? We're strangers to Christ. We're strangers to Israel. And we're strangers to the covenants of promise. How in the world can we be saved given our depraved state and our complete alienation from everything that would instruct us in the ways of God? Everything that would save us. Everything that would redeem us. We're completely separate from it, separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's your condition. (laughs) You're bad. You don't know how bad you are. You're looking forward to nothing but the wrath and judgment of God and you're strangers to all the things that could help you, and therefore you are hopeless. You have nothing to hope in, no confidence. Verse 13 starts with the words, but now, but now, now that you're saved, now that you're in Christ, now that you've been redeemed, even though that was Formerly your state, now your condition is going to be described by Paul. The same way that in verse 4 he said, you're in a terrible condition, but God, who is rich in mercy, did everything necessary to save you. Same idea here. Not only are you that bad and alienated and separated from everything that is godly, but now... Now, what's the change? What's the first place? Okay, Paul's thinking, but now. You used to be really, really bad, but now you're not. And what is the differentiating factor? But now in Christ Jesus. That's the differentiating factor. That's why last week I kept saying, run to Christ. If you can run to Christ, you better run to Christ. If you can get to Jesus, you better get to Jesus. Forget all that electing stuff for a moment. Forget all of that high theology. Instead, know that your condition is completely worthy of the wrath and judgment of God. That your natural standing is walking after the course of this world 
after the prince of the power of the air. You're walking after Satan and you are satiating and satisfying your flesh and your corrupt mind every single day. That is your state and you are completely separate from anything that could teach you about the things of God or what righteousness looks like. Therefore, the only way that you can be saved cannot be anything in you. Because Paul's gone to great lengths here to describe you as utterly incapable, utterly separated. There's nothing you can do. How are you going to be saved? The answer is in those two words, Christ Jesus. He has to do the saving. It can't be you. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by your good works, your effort, and by you making yourselves part of the community of Israel. What? <laughs> no, that's not it. No, you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. That phrase, by the blood of Christ, is like shorthand that means everything Christ did, the accomplished redemption that Christ already did. The very fact that he bled out, the fact that he hung on the cross, the fact that he was pierced, that he wore the crown of thorns for you, the fact that his back was whipped instead of yours, the very fact that he shed his blood as a sacrificial offering to God in your place, the very fact that he was willing to give himself as a ransom price in order to accomplish your full, complete redemption. Everything that Christ did that you didn't do and couldn't do is what Paul is referring to as the blood of Christ. And it is the blood of Christ that is what brought you near, even though you were so far off. Now, let's talk about the controversy for just a moment. Starting at this verse and starting at this language of you are brought near. People who believe that the church has replaced Israel as the newer, better, spiritual true Israel, language that you don't find anywhere in the Bible, but that theology exists out there, they will say, well, see, earlier Paul said that you were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and now you're brought near, meaning that what you're brought near to is the commonwealth of Israel. And so the church then becomes true Israel, spiritual Israel. In just a moment, we're going to see that Paul says that both Jew and Gentile, both guilty parties, are brought together not into a new Israel, not into a spiritual Israel. He says you are brought together into one new man. That new man is the community of Christ. Call it the church if you want. Call it the elect. Call it the called out. But it means that there is one new joint community, Jew and Gentile, who make up one new body, the body and bride of Christ. It does not say Gentiles who are saved become 
Israel. Instead, it says both Jew and Gentile, through faith in Christ, become one new man. And so if you pay attention to the language that Paul actually uses, then making the argument of spiritual Israel from this passage is kind of a fool's errand because it doesn't really say that. So here's the phraseology again. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have become brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. I like the fact that Paul emphasized it. He all by himself. God, to be God, is God all by himself. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need anybody's validation. He doesn't need anybody to choose him. He doesn't need anybody to make him God. He already is God. The same way that you don't make Jesus Lord and Savior. He already is Lord. He makes you saved. You don't make him anything. He is already everything. And therefore, Christ, he himself is the peacemaker. He's the one that makes it okay between you and God. Even though you were in that corrupt, depraved, sinful state. Even though you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, from the covenants of promise, even from the scriptures, even though you were alienated and far off, Christ brought you near and he brought you near all by himself. He didn't need anybody's help. He did the work. It's already accomplished. That's why when he was hanging on the cross, he could say, it's finished. I did it. I did it all by myself. There was nobody else up there with him. Nobody else stuck their hand in at the last minute and said, no, no, nail me too. He did it all by himself. So he himself is our peace. And you know, I've talked about that word so many times. What it means is the stopping or the ceasing of the againstness. God was against you, and you, by nature, were against him. And there was nothing you could do to change the relationship of him against you and you against him. He had to change the relationship, and he did it by himself. Have I stressed the himself part enough yet? You didn't add anything. You didn't do anything. You are saved by grace through faith. Otherwise... You would boast. Otherwise, you'd say, me, I did something. I'm involved somewhere here. Paul's theology is very precise, very exacting, that he did it all. You didn't do any of it. You are the recipient of grace. And if you could or did do any part of it, that's not grace. That's a debt. That's God paying you what he owes you because you did the thing. For it to be grace has to be completely undeserved. And if you're anything like me, you've worked really hard in this life to not deserve it. (laughs) But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off 
have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who made both groups, Jew and Gentile, into one, and he broke down the barrier of the dividing wall in the temple in Jerusalem, dating all the way back to Solomon's temple. There was something that was known as the court of the Gentiles. Gentiles who wanted to worship Yahweh could come to the temple, but they couldn't go into the places where only the ceremonially clean could go. Therefore, they had to stay out in the court of the Gentiles. And the court of the clean Jews, the worshiping Jews, the sacrificing Jews, and the court of the Gentiles, those two courts were separated by a large wall that was known as the dividing wall. And so Paul picks up that image and says the dividing wall that separated Jew and Gentile in the worship of God has been taken down, broken down by Christ in order to make both Jew and Gentile one new group of people, to make them a group of one instead of two groups, no longer just Jew and Gentile. And he broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. Now, having created that analogy of the dividing wall that Christ broke down, he's now going to say what the dividing wall was. In reality, what is the division between Jew and Gentile? And I've already told you. Does anybody remember what it is? The law, circumcision. That, Paul is going to say, was the dividing law, was the dividing wall. There was Jews who had the circumcision and claimed to keep the law. There were Gentiles who didn't have the law, didn't keep the law, and weren't circumcised. And Paul says, that was a dividing wall between you. But Christ got rid of the dividing wall between the two groups. Verse 15, by abolishing in his flesh... That means through the things that he suffered by making himself the propitiatory sacrifice, by abolishing in his flesh the againstness, the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. What is the law of commandments? Let's start there. Everybody knows the Ten Commandments. And then there are 613 other ordinances on top of that that you had to keep. Collectively, the Ten Commandments and the 613 ordinances was known as the law, the law of Moses. And Paul just said that acted as a dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. And so Christ, in order to build his own church and to make one new man out of both Jew and Gentile, he abolished the very thing that separated the two groups. Everybody who's in Christ, Jew or Gentile, is no longer under the law because Paul has already told us that all the law can do is make you guilty. All the law can do is demonstrate your lack of goodness. All the law can do is show you how sinful you are, but what the law cannot do is help you. 
If you've broken the law, it can condemn you. But if you break the law, it can't say to you, oh, wow, that looks tough. Let me help you here. It can't reach down to you. It can't say, oh, I understand. I'm a tough law. It's no wonder you broke me. No, the law can't do that. All the law can say is, you're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty. So, Christ as the single substitutionary sacrifice accomplished righteousness by faith in his finished work, in his blood. Therefore, the law is unnecessary for everybody who comes to God through Christ. By grace, you're saved. Through faith, that's not of yourself. That's not of the works of the law. That's not of the works of your flesh. You are saved because of the finished work of Christ Jesus. Therefore, the law is an unnecessary burden on both Jew and Gentile who come to God through Christ. Therefore, Christ abolished the law so that salvation could come to Jew and Gentile through him, not through the law. That's what divided the two groups. You got the theology of Paul there? Mm -hmm. He himself is our peace. This is verse 14. Who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, that in himself he might make the two into one new man, establishing peace. If you have peace with God today, it's not because you got good. It's not because you cleaned yourself up. It's not because you followed some dictate of the law, some part of the law that you actually could do. Therefore, you felt good about yourself. You know, I really have kept that no stealing law today. I haven't stolen anything yet today, so I feel good about me. There, I'm doing good. It can't be you because you would do exactly what I just did. You'd brag. You'd boast about it. Instead, Faith in Christ established peace between us and a God who is perfectly willing to pour out his wrath, to pour out his judgment, to satisfy his own righteousness, to satisfy his own holiness. That God was against you and you were against that God and Christ made peace between the two of you through the sacrificial work that he did. Therefore, all human beings, regardless of heritage, whether Jew or Gentile, who come to God through him, become part of the one new man that he is creating. That new man is referred to as the Christian, the saved, the saints, those who have been separated by God. Notice what they are not called. They are not called the new Israel. They are not called the true Israel. They are not called spiritual Israel. They are called the one new man. Verse 16. So that he might reconcile them both into one body to God through the cross. And by it, he has put to death the enmity between you and God. 
That, to put a fine point on it, is why we love Jesus. That is why we worship Christ. That is why we come here week by week and talk about him and what he has accomplished because he reconciled both Jew and Gentile into one body, into one group, the body of Christ. And he's presenting us to God through the cross. And that phrase, again, is a bit of shorthand on Paul's part. He's talking about the entirety of the cross work and the propitiatory sacrifice that Christ has made. But notice that when he says Christ reconciled all of us to God through the cross, it's obvious that he did that by himself because there's not a one of you in this room who was on the cross too. You weren't also on the cross. Therefore, he did it on the cross by himself. And that's why Paul keeps saying, by himself. He did it. He did it alone. He did it fully. He did it completely. He's the perfect Savior who saves perfectly. He accomplished everything necessary for your full and complete salvation and eternal redemption so that he could reconcile both Jew and Gentile in one body to God through the cross. And by it, he has put to death, utterly destroyed, killed off the enmity, the againstness between God and us, therefore establishing that thing that we have all been longing for our whole lives, actual, genuine peace. Don't you long for peace? Yes. <laughs> I look at this world, and you know, the Bible says they're going to be saying, peace, peace, but there is no peace. But one of the nicknames, if I may be bold enough to use that phrase, one of the nicknames for Jesus is the Prince of Peace. When he comes back and establishes his rulership, it's going to be peace. It's going to be no more people arguing about who's in charge. He's going to bring about peace. And when you stand before God, he is not going to judge you because your sins have been covered by the blood of Christ. Therefore, that's not going to come up. And he has established you in righteousness in exchange for your faith. So you're going to stand before him spotless and blameless and without blemish. And therefore, when you stand before God, there is going to be actual peace between the two of you. And can you imagine what that would be like to stand before the God of ages and have him be nothing but accepting of you and loving toward you? And have there be nothing but peace between you. If you can ever get a hold of that. If you can see that that is a present reality. Because it was already accomplished. The peace was accomplished 2,000 years ago on Calvary. You just haven't experienced it yet in the heavenly realm. But as you're walking through this life and through this crazy world, you have a bit of it. You have the peace that passes understanding. Even in the midst of troubles in this world, you still have that peace, that looking forward to, that expectation that when you leave this planet, you're going to stand before God and be accepted because of what Jesus Christ has already done. He did it all by himself, and he established peace between you and God. We're nearly done. We've got to move quickly here. He reconciled both Jew and Gentile into one body 
to God through the cross, having put to death the enmity. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far away and peace to you who are near. There he is quoting Isaiah 57. So it's already in his scripture. He's already reciting that this is the way God has always planned it. For through him, he's the central focus. Through him, we both have our access. We both have our access, both Jew and Gentile. Our access to the Father is by one singular spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, who is not divided between Jew and Gentile, who does not have a split personality. The one spirit of God in both Jew and Gentile gives us both access to Father God. That's how we get there as the one new man, as the one body of Christ because of what he accomplished through him, we both, Jew and Gentile, have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then, verse 19, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, and you are God's household. You're no longer far away. You're no longer distant. And Isaiah predicted that was going to be the case, that he was going to call those who were far off, and he is going to bring them together so that they are no longer strangers and aliens, but instead fellow citizens with the hagios. That's the word that's translated saints there. You are fellow citizens of heaven with the holy ones. That's how God sees you now. Through the finished work of Christ, you are now fellow citizens with the hagios, the saints of God, the holy ones of God. In the heavenly realms, God sees you as already part of the family, already son-placed, already adopted into the family of God, already heirs of God through Christ Jesus. And you have been built upon the foundation of the apostles, and the prophets, and Christ Jesus himself is the cornerstone. So now Paul is creating a simile of sorts, an analogy where he's describing how we are built the way a building is built, and that Christ is the chief cornerstone. But then we are built up on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. What the apostles know and what the prophets have preached in the Old Testament they all have pointed toward Christ. They all have preached it's Christ. They have all said he is the one and he is the only one. He is the only begotten of the Father. He is the unique Son of God. The apostles and the prophets have all pointed to Christ who is the cornerstone on which everything else is built. This is also standard Pauline theology. We don't have time this morning to go look at it, but in your free time you can go look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and Paul talks about how every man who preaches Christ builds on the foundation. But he says there's no other foundation except Christ. Christ has to be the foundation. You don't get to mess with the foundation. And then he warns, be careful how you build. If you build wood, hay, stubble, that's going to be burned away, although you yourself are going to be saved. But if any man builds gold, silver, precious stones, if he builds well on that foundation... 
then he's going to gain a reward. But the foundation, my point is, the foundation doesn't change. The foundation, the chief corner on which everything else is built up, is Christ himself and what the apostles and the prophets have said about Christ. And that's why we spend so much time just looking at the Bible, so that we can know what the apostles and the prophets said about Christ, so that we're saying the same things about Christ, so that we're being accurate when we talk about Christ. We've been built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. To the Jews, the holiest place on the planet was the temple. The temple in Jerusalem was the place where you go to worship God. The holy of holies in the temple was the place where men would meet with God once a year on the Day of Atonement. And so that became the very seat of worship to the Jewish mind. Paul here says that once we have been built up, all of us collectively, upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets... We are built into a whole building, an entirely different building. We are all fitted together, everybody in their proper place to form a perfect bit of architecture. And then he says we are built into a holy temple into the Lord. Now to the Jewish mind, that would be like, wait, 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 Gentiles are built into a holy temple. Temple? The place of worship? The reason that Paul says we're the temple of God is because the temple was the place where God resides. And once he gave us his Holy Spirit, now God resides in us. And so we collectively become the holy temple. In other words, wherever you are, and wherever you are with the Holy Spirit in you, that's the temple of God. That's the place where God now resides. He doesn't just reside in the temple in Jerusalem. He resides wherever his people are. And so we are being built up into a holy temple in whom you're being collectively built together by the master architect into a dwelling of God via his spirit. In his spirit. The spirit of God takes up residence in you. And that establishes you as a whole lot more than just the outcalled, just the gathering, just the church. It also makes you the place of the worship of God because you are the place where God resides. And that's wonderful. It is. <laughs> because you don't have to get on a jet plane and go to... Israel in order to worship God you're not restricted to worshiping God once a year you don't have to find a man to be a high priest you don't have to sacrifice animals 
Instead, you already have a perfect high priest who already made a perfect sacrifice. Therefore, the Spirit of God is with you wherever you are, and therefore you are the holy temple of God, the place where God resides, the place where the worship of God exists. So look at the contrast. That chapter began with, you're walking after the course of this world. You're walking after the course of Satan, after the prince of the power of the air. You're depraved. You're chasing after your flesh and everything your wicked mind could conceive of. You're completely blinded and lost in your sinfulness and your depravity. And now you are the very habitation of God the place where the worship of God occurs. And how did you get there? Christ Jesus himself. By grace you're saved, through faith, and that not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not of works, so that no man would boast. It's all grace. It's constantly grace. It's grace, 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 grace. Grace. Steve, if you would.
Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. We invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.